This is ContactTalkRadio.com. Consciousness in action. And you are taking action into your consciousness by tuning into Contact Talk Radio. And on TuneIn.com, Hing.fm, and Upsnap Mobile. Contact Talk Radio. Welcome to Living Fearlessly with your host, Lisa McDonald. My mama told me when I... Good morning, everybody. Thank you so very much for joining me, rejoining me again on this lovely Friday morning. My name is Lisa McDonald, host of Living Fearlessly with the Contact Talk Radio Network. Listenership spans 145 countries, 220 TV, radio, terrestrial satellites, and the potential for millions of iTunes downloads. Before introducing my phenomenal guest of this week, I just want to first, as I always do, thank my corporate sponsors, which include AHA That, Forever, and Halt and Honda. I also want to thank the loyal listeners and the podcast subscribers, as well as the people who take the time to review the show, and also send in lovely testimonials and endorsements supporting what it is that you feel you got out of the content of my guest and interview of each week. I also want to remind people and thank my partners and family members as well over at C-Suite Radio Network, where, of course, following the live show, you can eventually find the podcast link also on my host page, Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald. So who is my guest today? Well, my guest is a phenomenal journalist by the name of Carmen Gentile. Absolutely love the last name. So Carmen Gentile is the author of the critically acclaimed book, Blindsided by the Taliban, the story of his injury while reporting on the war in Afghanistan. His work has appeared in Esquire, the New York Times, USA Today, and many other leading publications. In addition to war reporting, Carmen also writes about motorcycling in unusual places like Iraq. Good morning, Carmen. How are you? Wonderful. How are you? I'm doing amazing. It's lovely to have you here. We've uh, we've been talking about bringing you onto the show and pre-scheduling this for quite some time, and now the day is finally upon us. So I couldn't be more grateful for the gift of your time because I know how incredibly off the hook you are. Um, so I'm just going to dive right in, Carmen. So, you know, there's so many layers within your story that really appeals to me as it would to the listening audience. But first I want to say, I'm, I'm grateful that you're here. I'm grateful that you survived that injury. Uh, it was a pretty major one, life-altering and transformational, which we'll delve into, and you can share the complexities of all of that with the listening audience. Um, but I'm just so grateful that you're here, that you're alive, you're thriving, uh, you've got a wonderful family, and the legacy continues. So good on you. Appreciate that. Glad to be here and glad to have survived and glad that I can Absolutely. share my story. Well, you know, one thing I want to first start off by saying, because, I mean, this is organic in nature. It's unscripted dialogue for people who closely follow me. I think it makes for a much more authentic discussion. Um, but I'm always interested in the inception of my guest's journey. Now, you as a journalist, we know that basically the job, you're here to deliver the facts. You're here to remain objective and impartial and as neutral as what you possibly can be in the way of your reporting. That's the job. So fast forward to where we are today, that many years later after that incident and your time specifically related to that incident um, having already transpired. You know, would you be able to freely share with myself and the listeners and the podcast subscribers, Carmen, any feelings, personal feelings, either politically, uh, spiritually, that you could interject into offering some insights and some revelations for what that was now that you've had an opportunity to process and decompress from that? Well, uh, it's hard for me to separate my personal experience with my work now in Afghanistan. The two have become so intertwined, not just because of my book, but because of what had happened to me. I, um, I feel as though I have to be even more cognizant of the fact that I need to be objective because it, for example, if I'm doing a story uh, while accompanying U.S. forces uh, in an embed and it was, uh, it was soldiers and, and men and women and who uh, saved my life both on the front lines and in the rear and uh, when they operated on me in Afghanistan. So I have a, a personal special feeling in my heart for them. But I also know that when I'm doing my job that I have to be still be objective and still uh, you know, portray the facts as they are. Mm-hmm. So it adds a, a, an additional layer of, of complication to my uh, objectivity. But I'm cognizant of it, so 
it's something that I just have to continually remind myself when I'm when I'm doing the job. Okay, fair enough. And do you feel looking back on that, was it a justified war? Uh, did it make sense for you to be there? I know you kind of have to just go and, and, you know, take the order for where it is you need to go. Um, you know, but was there any inner conflict that was going on for you at the time in terms of, you know, really things did not have to escalate to this point or maybe this isn't warranted, maybe it isn't justified, or maybe there's another perspective that the rest of the world outside of those on the inside, such as us reporters and correspondents, aren't necessarily privy to that would make it a little bit more convoluted? Well, the the fact of the matter is uh, I was there because I wanted to be there. Okay. Uh, and nobody nobody forced my hand to be in Afghanistan. It was something that I, I wanted to do. Um, it it was the career path that I have chosen. It's the uh, those are the types of stories that I, that I wanted to cover. So mm-hmm. my being there was of my own volition, and, and so I would never say that that I had no choice. Um, but I uh, am asked this all the time. And I, I like to, to kid that every time someone asks me why I do it or why I would go and put myself in that position, I give a different answer. So mm-hmm. let me – the original answer that I'm giving you on, on your show is the fact that, is that I have an inner drive that wants to see things uh, as they are no matter how um, – terrible the situation may be that are that are unvarnished by anyone else's perception um am i am i making any sense i want to be there first i want to see it with my own eyes i'm all i'm the type of reporter that uh has to have the thing happen in front of me in order to tell the story i'm not a deep dive uh, you know, rifling through the, the filing cabinet with the flashlight between my teeth reporter. I'm not that <laughs> guy, you know. I don't, I don't have secret meetings in parking garages at 3 in the morning. I go to places where things are happening in broad daylight and the events are unfolding in front of me. And um, I think it's, it's basically an extension of all the work that I'd ever, I'd ever done uh, when I first started out working in a local newspaper while still in college, and I'm still that same guy. I, I talk to people, notebook in hand, and say, "Tell me your story. What's happening here?" And I, that's that's the kind of reporter I, I, I am, and that means I have to be right on the ground where things are happening, and that's that's amazing. That's well, what I, I'm just going to scale back a little bit and delve a little bit deeper into something you said, which I think is quite pivotal. This is why you're on my show, Carmen. This is why you're truly embodying the spirit of what it means to live fearlessly, because for you to have indicated, you know, it's not enough for me to go rifling through the filing cabinet, you know, for me to really dig my teeth in and to really get a sense of what is truly going on. I have to be on the front lines. And I think whether you're talking about journalism, I think, you know, you probably that's not something that's compartmentalized or specific to journalism uh, and, you know, news reporting uh, itself. It probably speaks to every aspect of your life. You know, you're in it. You're in the trenches. You're up close and personal. You're not cowering behind anybody. You're not just taking somebody else's word for it or somebody else's opinion. You're actually figuring this out yourself as you indicated with your own eyes. So I just want to commend you on that because a lot of people, specifically when we're talking about what it means to live fearlessly, people just aren't willing to make that leap of faith. Yeah, it's, it's, um, Part of me feels as though I I uh, have a a compulsion that I can't say no to. Um, you know, I I just got done saying that no one makes me do anything. Well, there's that there's that one side of me that that does make me do it. And maybe there's the there's that argument between the the that side and the other side that says, wow, you shouldn't be doing this. And it's that constant conversation that makes myself sound like I'm schizophrenic. But really. What I'm, <laughs> We all have we all have these inner inner monologues and uh, internal debates, right? Should I do this? Mm-hmm. Should I not do this? This is how I um, if I go this way, this is the this is the way my career is going to go or my life's going to go. Blah, blah blah. I find I'm better at making the decisions that are. <laughs> this is going to sound terrible. I feel like I'm better at making life or death death decisions than I am making regular everyday decisions. Get it? I totally get it. Yeah. 
I get that. You're speaking to me 100%. Absolutely. I get that. So let's talk about the life-death moment. Let's go back to that absolute precise moment to the degree that you can remember it. I don't know if it's a slow-mo that plays over in your head. I don't know if you were completely oblivious to it because it just happens so quickly. What do you remember from that moment where you were shot? Well, I remember it very vividly because I never lost consciousness. We, uh, I was uh, embedded with U.S. forces along the Afghan-Pakistani border, just a couple miles from the, the border with Pakistan, and it was a very remote, mountainous uh, village. When I say village, it was just a couple of stone huts along a very narrow dirt road. And uh, along with the, with a platoon of soldiers, I, I was walking through this village, and I already had a really, really hinky vibe about what was going on. Typically, um, when you go into an area... Uh, and the children are nice to you and they want to give the soldiers high fives and, and, you know, smile at you. Things are okay. But on this, in this occasion, there were no kids around and any, and any, uh, soldier or Marine will tell you when the kids scatter, something's going, something's going to happen. Hmm. So there were no kids around and we were talking to these people in the village. Uh, there were a couple of young men on the side of the road, just sitting on, on the side of this little dirt road. And I had my video camera trained on them and I was asking them questions and I was so, so certain that something was wrong that I was stammering out questions and I couldn't even understand what they were telling me back through the interpreter. And then all of a sudden I, I hear this whooshing sound from behind me and I turn around and about 40 yards down the road, there's a man shouldering a rocket propelled grenade launcher. Now for your listeners, I don't know if they know what that is, but it's that long cylindrical yes. tube. That has the, that shoots the projectile with a conical tip on it. And that conical projectile is a, is a grenade. It's an explosive device. So he fired that right at the group of us and it came beam, you know, on a beeline right toward me and it actually hit me in the side of the face and, and didn't detonate. But the ordinance hit me in the side of the face and it immediately, my right eye went black and, um, I went blind in my right eye and the, and the, all the bones in the side of my face just shattered into a, into a thousand shards. Um, and then the thing bounced off of me, hit the platoon leader in the elbow and then clattered to the ground. And I dropped my video camera, but the camera keeps running and you can hear in the, in the, in the, in the video, someone asked me if I'm okay. And I said, no, obviously, no, I'm not okay. I just got <laughs> the face with an RPG that didn't go out. <laughs> the thing hit me in the face and, and I, my eye went black. I thought, well, okay, that's, I'm dead. Cause I, you know, the lights went out and I figured, okay, this is what happens when the lights go out. Um, you know, maybe you're dead, but you're still, you know, there's some consciousness, but this is, I'm going to be done soon. But I hit the ground took one knee and all of a sudden I just felt this blood pouring out of my face and it was all over this dirt road. And then I realized that I had in fact not been killed, but, uh, that's, that's when the real mayhem kicked off. Wow. And so as a result of, you know, you connecting the dots in those exact moments and you realized, okay, I'm not dead, but I realized that I've been seriously injured. Your right eye goes black what are you feeling? Like, are you, do you even recollect what it was you were feeling outside of being detail factual oriented and going, okay, this is just what's transpired. What did you have? Were you thinking about anybody when people talk about those moments having occurred, you know, other certain type thoughts come to you. You're either thinking about your family or you're thinking about regrets or you're thinking about a whole host of things. You know, do, do you remember having any specific thoughts? Here's how it, here's how it went down for me. Uh, I had fractions of a second between the time I saw the ordinance coming toward me um, and the time of impact. I mean, just frag maybe a maybe a second and a half. And in that second of a half, my my legs felt glued to the ground as I watched this thing screaming toward me. And I went from full uh, a, a full onslaught of panic to resignation that I was going to die in in a nanosecond. It just wow. was a burst of, of adrenaline and fear, and then it came over me quickly that, well, this is it. I'm done, and it's going to be over soon. And, and so you, you never had the luxury of blacking out? You no. Jeez. Kind of, oh, I, was, I was never so fortunate, and I was 
awake throughout the whole um, treatment at, on the on the scene, and then emergency evacuation. They have uh, there's a there's a division of the Air Force called the Pararescue Jumpers. They're highly trained um, rescue uh, medics that fly into very dangerous situations. They came to get me. Um, they landed the helicopter, pulled me out, and then I was eventually flown to the U.S. military hospital at Bagram, uh, a, uh, one of the largest military base in northern Afghanistan, and they took me there, and I had the first of many surgeries. There was an Air Force ophthalmologist on duty who was able to uh, partially repair my eye. The, the actual globe of my eye had been lacerated, not to get too yucky for your listeners, but there's a jelly inside your eye that gives it its nice uh, global firm shape, and all that jelly had spilled out into my skull cavity, and they had to scoop up that jelly and put it back in my eye. And oh, God. Sew that up, and um, I woke up in the hospital uh, at the U.S. military hospital several, several hours later. I don't know. Um, this is all detailed in my book. But uh, And then they, initially they told me amidst all my, in my narcotic haze that I was probably going to lose the eye. Um, and uh, because I was so doped up, I thought, eh, it's fine. I, I <laughs> I'll just wear an eye patch. It'll look cool. And, you know, it's all fine here. I can't even feel my toes. I'm on, I'm on so many opioids right now. This is, this is all fine. I'll, 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 I'll <laughs> right? So. Wow. So, yeah, that was that was the the uh, that was how I handled it initially, and uh, but that was only the beginning. There's there's months of recovery and no all doubt. Kind of, uh, personal uh, and uh, and physical shenanigans that ensued that, until I was able to get back up on my feet and back up on the horse of uh, in bed reporting. And so, in terms of the healing recovery process, what was the most staggered? Um, part of that for you? Was it emotionally? Was it mentally? Was it physically? Was it spiritually? What part was the last part for you to get recalibrated with the mindset of, okay, ready, set, go again? Um, it, it, I would say, uh, you know, the emotional, uh, part, that was the, that was the, uh, very difficult period in my life because I was having, um, uh, I, I don't want to spoil too much of the story because I want people to read the book. Um, <laughs> I, I, I was having a, a romantic interlude problem, uh, with a woman that, with whom I had been involved in, and was seriously involved at that time. And, um, things subsequently fell apart, um, and were, were adversely affected by my injury. And then, uh, I spiraled downward from there. And I think, well, I know that I used my injury to excuse a lot of my later uh, abhorrent behavior because I thought, well, hey, I got shot in the face with an RPG. I can do whatever I damn well please now. Mm-hmm. And so for months on end after my injury, as I was recovering, I was cashing in on everyone else, on everyone's sympathy and not always being as considerate as I, as I could have been to the point where about four months after I'd been hurt, there were a whole bunch of people that were done dealing with me. They figured this guy's in, ex- in an exceptional pain in the ass. We're <laughs> not hang out with him anymore. Uh, right. so all, but all that goodwill I had earned from from uh, all that goodwill I had scored from getting shot in the face was was uh, used up by the time Christmas rolled around. Oh, jeez. Uh, <laughs> so I and then it, I spent a good deal of time by myself trying to figure out how to make myself whole again. And then I came to the conclusion that the only real way I was going to get whole was if I went back to Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Now, <laughs> now going back to what you just and, and I commend you on saying that a lot of people don't own their stuff. A lot of people don't see the cause and effect of, you know, action, reaction, behaviorally. Um, have you had the opportunity or have people granted you the opportunity to either apologize or to atone or to get some kind of closure with some of these things? Uh, some of, some of them I have apologized to in the book. In fact, I said in the acknowledgments, if I, if I were to apologize to everyone individually in this, in these pages, it would be longer than, than the rest of the pros. But I, um, wrote the book as a 
as in in some in one sense as a as a way of apologizing for some of my less than admirable behavior along the way. And I hope that some of those that were on the receiving end of it have had the opportunity to read it. And, beautiful, uh, beautiful, good job. Yeah, good we'll job. <laughs> now, yeah, it, the word's still out, eh? Verdict's still out on that. Yeah, um, no, but you did the right thing. You did the right thing. So, I mean, as long as you took the measures to do what you knew was right, doesn't matter how many months or years after the fact, you know, if people choose to come around and, and understand and believe the sincerity of what it is you've had to say and then putting into perspective, well, how would I have been? If I'd gone through that set of unique circumstances, how could I really say for sure that I would be positive, chipper? You know, these things happen, sure. but, but you know, you atoned for it. So good for you. Um, now, just generically talking about news as a subject matter, you know, there are some people who perhaps would be of the philosophy or the, or the belief that news of today perpetuates fear, greed, consumption, and would serve to subconsciously, you know, immobilize people and submerge people into the abyss of fear. What do you say about the culture of news reporting of these days, of our times? Well, you know, I... I we went from a period just a few years ago where everyone was saying that that uh, news news mainstream news is on the decline and there's uh even leading organizations like the New York Times and the Washington Post et cetera are are, are uh ex- experiencing lean years et cetera et cetera no one's reading that i i think all of that is is uh just not the case Mm-hmm. Uh, we've seen in the last few years, people are actually taking a more concerted effort to, to, to pay attention to what's going on, particularly in U.S. politics now. Um, so, uh, organizations like the New York Times, like the Washington Post have seen their subscriptions, uh, go through the roof in the last couple of years. Readership has expanded greatly. People are actually paying attention. And, and the fact of the matter is there is, there is a market, um, uh, even among millennials for good deep dive, long form journalism, um, they, and even in print for that matter, and I mean print in, in, in publications, handheld publications, because the, the younger readers aren't as addicted to their devices as the Gen X types like myself, who, mm-hmm. uh, remember what it was like, you know, pre internet, but we, we were, uh, greatly seduced by our, our devices and, and have become glued to our phones in ways that the younger folks are not. So they, I, there is, there is, I think that there's a lot of great journalism out there. I think that there's a lot of really good reporting. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I have people ask me, uh, quite often about, you know, what's the good, what, where should I get my news? What should I watch? And I think, mm-hmm. no, why are you asking me what to watch? Why don't you read? Um, don't, right. ask, don't, complain to, don't complain to me that, well, CNN is biased and Fox News is biased and what, but then don't watch it. <laughs> it's, for the most part, it's, it's, uh, it, it, they're regurgitating the same handful of stories every, every day on and on and on. Um, whereas you can go to the, uh, wealth of knowledge that you carry around in your pocket. And, and look at any number of stories, or, or even if you if you want to go old school and pick up a paper or a magazine, there's great stuff out there that is informative that will teach you more about uh, different perspectives on the world that will provide you more differently varied perspectives on the world than you'll ever get listening to the same twelve pundits on CNN and, and twelve on, on Fox, you know, toe their same lines. Just don't don't listen to that. That's that's ridiculous. Exactly. Well, I want to circle back to something you said, because, you know, yes, there might be an increase, a radical increase in terms of number of subscribers and and viewership and readership and listenership and everything be on the up and up. That doesn't necessarily, as you and I would both know, that doesn't equate to um, the caliber or the quality, uh, not necessarily the quality of the news, but in terms of, you know, going back to my original point, you know, does news, because predominantly we know that the news that's being reported, especially in the culture of what's happening either on the political realm or what's happening with uh, climate change, you know, succession of hurricanes, we're in the midst of a couple right now, um, you know, so numbers go up because, you know, unfortunately there's still some truth to the fact that people are, are more 
choose to be more gravitating towards negativity, either because they haven't chosen to do the internal work on themselves where they would err more on the side of positivity and keeping things uh, vibrant in their own mindset. Um, I'm not dissing the news here. I'm just talking about what we know to be in terms of alternative opinions around the news, in terms of fear-mongering, in terms of, you know, everything in the world is going to shit, you know, all this stuff, like, you know, people feed off of that because it makes what, by comparison, what's going on in their individual lives fare better for them in the perception of that and in the handling of that. Um, so what do you say about that? Well, 20 years ago, we had, uh, and I mean the, the collective uh, English-speaking uh, North American media had uh, what I could say is a relatively a fairly agreed-upon set of facts mm-hmm. when it came to a particular uh, uh, news story or a particular event. Um, mm-hmm. We were uh, there. There were uh, different ways in which to look at a, at a story through various publications, whether it was a left-leaning publication like the New York Times or a right-leaning publication like the Wall Street Journal. But everything else, you know, we had a we had a fairly agreed-upon set of facts about what, for example, happened on a particular day at a particular time. We don't have that anymore. In the 21st century of multiple media outlets and where everyone who's a quote-unquote citizen journalist can blog or, or put something up on Facebook that people will then gravitate to because it best represents how they feel about a certain subject, whether or not it's true or not, is mm-hmm. where we find ourselves. Well, that's why we're more, even though we're great, we have greater connectivity, we're, we're more splintered in our perception of reality than at any time, obviously in my lifetime. And, and, uh, I would, I would have to dig deeper into seeing when was the last time it's in U.S. history that I've, you know, being American, why I would, I, you know, I can't imagine that it was ever been like this, uh, in modern times. Um, let's look at just something that, 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 uh, is, is being debated though. I can't understand why right now. The, mm-hmm. Donald Trump recently said that 3,000 people in, right, didn't die in the hurricane when there have been, uh, there have been numerous um, long-form, months-long studies that were ratified and accepted by the U.S. government that that was, in fact, the case, that 2,975 people died as a result of Hurricane Maria. He can't accept it, so he says it otherwise, and legions of people will believe what he says. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's a good point, because spin sells, right? Uh, questionable truth sells. Um, why, you know, for somebody who's at that level of governance, for somebody who has that type of control, that type of power, I mean, we could talk, I mean, that's Donald Trump. That's, that's, that's a week of shows in itself (laughs) for me. Um, you know, but what do you think's going on there? Like mental health for sure. Right. Him? Yeah. (sighs) Okay. Let's just digress for a minute because we know. Let's digress for a minute, okay? And and this this will I think this will will sum it up uh, succinctly, and and this will let you know where I said he's an abhorrent jackass, and yes. he only cares about himself. That's yes. it. That's exact. That's nothing else to it. Is he mentally incompetent? I don't know. I maybe it doesn't even matter whether or not he's because by saying he's mentally incompetent. There's, you're somewhat subtly excusing the behavior. True. Uh, I, you know, I think he was probably like this his entire life. He hasn't evolved since he was six years old. This is, <laughs> and, and, and there are legions of people who are okay with it, either because they're getting the tax cuts they want, the deregulations that they want, or the fact that he sticks his thumb in the eye of all the people that they hate, which is the establishment. Right. And, and, with it. And for whatever other myriad reasons why 63 million Americans voted for it, I don't know. But there, there's, that's it. That, that's all there is to it. His ego can't handle the fact that he thinks that people think that under his watch, the U.S. government did a bad job in Puerto Rico. Right. <laughs> yeah. 
So for somebody of your caliber, for somebody who does precisely what it is you do for a living in terms of journalism, being very cognizant of analytics, trends, uh, you know, previous outcomes that are somewhat on similar trajectories of, of where they're going and where things are going to land. What do you forecast for this current government? Like, what, and, and what's the domino effect? What, like, what do you foresee happening either in the short term or the long term as a result of him still being at the helm? Well, I have, during the course of my career, covered uh, these types of hardline governments uh, in the Middle East and Africa in um, Latin America. I, I have seen the ill effects of uh, a manipulative leader who uh, has a cult-like following and uh, does everything he can to uh, discredit the, the mainstream uh, independent press. Uh, in, in that event, uh, things get worse before they get better. And, and often... In, in those places that I mentioned, things never get better. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a, a, in the United States a, a robust uh, founding document in, in the Constitution that is, has stood up to other leaders who, who didn't uh, uphold their, their, their oath to, to defend the Constitution but, uh, and, and tried to manipulate it to their own um, uh, to their own design, but this is uh, at a whole new level. Uh, the founders never, I believe, had in mind that somebody this cripplingly deceptive and and self-serving could ever ascend to the presidency. And now that it's happened, I think that we're in a position whereby um, things could get a lot worse. I I know for a fact that in, in there are those who in America will, will um, you know, there are enough, we have, <laughs> we have enough crazies running around in, in the, in, in America that, that have a dozen or more arms in their closet that uh, I worry about. And if it's only a fraction of, of his supporters, were he to become, be impeached or removed from office, I think we could be looking at a, at a potentially uh, violent upheaval in the United States. I, I truly do. So you think that he can pl- – you think the state of current affairs can plummet any further with him currently being at the helm? Like I, I don't even know – every we're time not, I – We're near the bottom. I mean every time every time uh, they proclaim a new low for something that he said or done, uh, he, he he gets the shovel out and says, let's, uh, let's see how deeper we can go. <laughs> I All can right? outdo myself. Remember, remember when he, he – he, 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 uh, 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 you know, disgrace the name of, of the late great John McCain in 2015. Yes. You know, like people had been captured. We all thought, oh, that's it. His his candidacy is over. There's no way you could say something like that. Out comes the show. It. Just dig deeper. Gets caught on tape bragging about assaulting women. Let's get the show and we'll keep digging deeper. Deeper and deeper we go. This is this is this is the uh, strategy of an authoritarian dictatorship. This is what they do. They keep piling on greater and greater uh, offenses so that you can't keep up with them. And so, and also the bar for what's offensive keeps, keeps getting pushed further and further. So if he says something a little less offensive or actually gives a state of the union speech where he doesn't babble like an idiot because he's read from a teleprompter, think people think, well, wow, he's acting presidential. (laughs) You know, that's because Americans have, have a really difficult time um, uh, maintaining and remembering uh, our, our, uh, our a sense of history, mm-hmm. um, which is it's difficult for them to because if 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 America's had a, a deep dive understanding of history, uh, the, the parallels between this situation and, and Watergate alone would would make his continuing presidency just uh, inconceivable. But absolutely, but because people don't study history and don't aren't taught history adequately. Civics. That's another problem in the United States. The, the, somebody like him could come to power because he promises to quote unquote run the country like a business. I don't know. I, you know, I, I don't spend a lot of time in offices, but I have had a job where I've had to sit in an office. That's not that's not a democracy. You walk into an office building and your boss is the dictator. He tells you what to do. You suspend right. rights when you walk in when you walk into the room and then walk into an office and then when you leave at the end of the day, you resume being free. 
But that's not a business and a government cannot are not congruent. Those are two, one <laughs> is an autocracy and one is hopefully closer to a democracy. Right. Now let's quickly switch to because there's still other things in ground that I want to cover with you. So who do you think the anonymous author is? Oh, I, <laughs> I, I, I've gone back and forth on this many times, and I get to play amateur sleuth too. Like I said, I don't do this kind of journalism, but. Yeah, I, I catch myself trying to figure it out as well. Oh, because they use the word lodestar, it has to have been Mike Pence, but Mike right. Pence was so transparent. Who's sneaky enough to do that? Well, Kellyanne Conway's kind of sneaky enough to do that. She'd throw him under the bus, and the writing and the analysts say that it was probably somebody who, who was a woman, but because they used this word, they split that infinitive, blah, 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 you know, this ridiculous uh, parlor games of, of who done it. It was probably a group of people who put it together. Hell, for all we know, it was everybody in the room other than the president. For the same people who are defending him on television and, and denying all the quotes in the Woodward book, they probably all put it together because they want the world to know. Uh, they want to make sure that, that uh, our allies and adversaries know that, that uh, you know. He stands alone on this crap. Yeah, cuckoo train, you know, uh, rotten uh, Halloween gourd of a president is not going to blow us <laughs> up. <laughs> now, do you do you believe though that it's an internal letter or an internal memo? I think it came from the outside. I, I think Putin's got his hand in this one. Yeah, the Times didn't make that up. Of course, I I, I question whether or not uh, they they should have done it anonymously. I, I, I you know that was a that was a a, a call that was made by their uh, uh, by their. Um, Opinion staff, I have no idea whether I would have made that same call because I don't know who it was that, that, uh, that sent the letter or who was mm -hmm. the figure at the, at, at the head of it. Um, but I, 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 uh, uh, yeah, it's definitely came from inside the administration. You think so? I don't know. I just have this strong yeah. suspicion that it came from the outside with the optics of wanting people to believe at the massive level that this was internal just to create more chaos. Right. Well, take, and, and, and take and take the highlight and the focus off other people who are just as guilty of perpetuating other pervasive ills in this world. Let, you know, but, let's just let's just throw it all in there. So you think the Times was duped by this letter or you think that they're complicit in this in this? No, I think this was an outside source, but it's being represented uh, and maybe perhaps believed by The New York Times and wanting, wanting, you know, the Western world to believe that this was, in fact, uh, an inside letter, an inside job, an inside consensus-type sentiment. I believe it came from the outside. And, you know, time will tell. And I could be completely off-base. I really – I have a hard time believing that because it would decimate the New York Times and their reputation. You know, the New York Times got dinged a couple times over the years uh, – with with this, uh, they had one reporter, I can't remember whose name was, um, who, who got caught making up a bunch of sources and they had to go back and, and apologize and, and reinvestigate all his work. Um, I, I don't think, I think that whoever gave them the letter, they vetted, I think they checked it out to the best of their ability. Um, yeah, and time will tell because it always comes out. It always Other does. Always, other than those 18 and a half minutes that Nixon erased, uh, uh, they'd always <laughs> And he still had to resign. But, right. uh, I think, I think it's gonna come out. It's all gonna come out in the Mueller investigation. And when it does, it's gonna blow our socks off. Even, even though we probably lost the capacity to be surprised, when he comes out with whatever it is he has, Lord Almighty, it's gotta be good. Because the guy's thorough. He's been digging, he's been digging despite the fact that, that he's had to suffer the slings and arrows of Trump's insanity and, and Rudy Giuliani's nightly, uh, protests that, you know, we're, we're gonna do, you know, launch our own investigation against Mueller and all the stuff. There's gonna be something that comes out of this. It's either his taxes or there's gonna be a, a deep, deep Russian connection, whether it's the P tape. It's all, it's all gonna be in there. I guarantee it. Right. Yeah. Now, as far as Woodward's book, Fear, is this something that you've already gotten your hands on? No, I haven't looked at it yet. I'm going, I'm actually heading back to the States, uh, uh, leaving tomorrow. I want to grab a hard copy and, uh, and dig into it. 
But Laura, they've been, they've been uh, talking about it so much. I feel like they spoiled the whole thing for me. Right. Um, I'm not surprised at anything that uh, uh, I've heard about thus far. Any of the, mm-hmm. the passages that have that have leaked, or the anecdotes from the from the book, even that Woodward himself has, has recounted. Um, you know, there have been numerous efforts to try to. Uh, 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 impugn the, the, the reporting and his reputation mm-hmm. is, is the, 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 the dean of Washington press corps. I, I really, if I have to choose between who am I going to believe Bob Woodward or Donald Trump, I mean, that's not even worth asking. There you no. go. Yeah. I quite like Woodward. I think he's very credible. I think he's very highly esteemed, reputable. Um, you know, I, yeah, he does his homework, so uh, I would be inclined to believe him. But um, so, you know, in terms of going back to you, and let's talk about your book, you know, when did you first birth this book? Where can people find the book? What's in in the makings in terms of a follow-up book, maybe something completely separate? Well, I first started writing this book in, in 2014. I had been injured in September 2010. And, um, I had been, uh, scheming the book for, uh, uh, years afterward, but I hadn't found the, uh, the quiet and the time that I needed to really, uh, dig into it. I had been scribbling notes for years on end and I had a very detailed idea in mind of just how I would, I would structure the story, um, the way, the voice I, I wanted to use, um, very different from my from my traditional journalism, which is, um, like I said, you know, objective. Um, not a lot. There's hardly any of, of myself in any of, of my uh, reporting work. So this was a, a deep dive into myself, and, a, and I chose to write it in a way that was a, my own authentic voice, warts and all. Um, so there's a, quite a bit of, of colorful language in the book, um, as most reporters are, are want to, to use. Um, and I, I basically shut myself off from the world. I rented this god awful, dilapidated house in the uh, in the mountains east of Pittsburgh, and I sat there for months with uh, no one but my thoughts and a, and a box full of notes and, and my notebooks. And I uh, and I banged out the first draft. Uh, Beautiful. In a, a number of months, and then I. Uh, I polished it and tinkered with it and shopped it around. It was the shopping around part that, that took a long time. It took me about two and a half years to find someone that wanted to, to publish it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a, it was a hard. That's surprising. Yeah, it was a hard sell. It really was. When you say I'm I'm writing a a first person unvarnished uh, story about uh, getting shot in the face. That's not a the typical sanctimonious thousand yard stare. I'm a tough guy journalist story, but one that really admits to your foibles and fears. Um, that goes against the the traditional um, narrative that, of, of books that, by journalists that you that typically get. Not saying that they're all like that, but you know, I, I chose to to write, a, like I said, a very unvarnished uh, account of what happened, and a lot of it is is personal, and it's not a it's not a book that's a, a, a deep dive into the politics and policy of Afghanistan. Uh, there's very little about uh, uh, fighting strategy and whatnot. It's about the personal lives of uh, myself and, and, and soldiers and Afghans and, and those that are that have been uh, through the same types of struggles that I have and, and continue to do so and the kinship that I find among um, soldiers and Marines and, and fellow journalists uh, and how going back into Afghanistan after my injury was was uh, cathartic for me. Not mm-hmm. ultimately redemptive, but it, it helped me get a little bit further down the road. Um, so I, I I finally found a home for it in 2017, and it came out just this past March, and people seem to like it. Fantastic. Well, it's interesting to me that for the very standalone reasons as to why your book story would be uniquely different as compared to, as you cited, other uh, forthcoming books uh, from journalists reporting on their experience in the field and whatever that looked like for them uh, in the reporting field. You know, I would I would think publishers would be like knocking at your door saying, you know, this is fresh. This is 
this is unique. This is authentic. This is different. You know, I mean, Publishers don't want unique. They want the same thing that sold before. That's not what publishers want. They want if 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 yeah, but you but your story but, though your your story though did you know does have the other elements that would be enticing for a publisher. And even if you deviate from the norm in that one regard, I would still think that you would be considered in most respects the package deal for who to partner I, with. I hate I hate to contradict you, but I got a stack of rejection letters that would tell you otherwise. <laughs> okay. Well, well, they're lost, but, uh, but you know what? There's another example of you staying the course and, and facing fear in the eye. You know, it, it's, I'm, I'm relentless. I'm going to do this. I know that this is a story that's going to resonate with people. I know that there's people who would lap this up for the bigger message within the message and within the backstory of what transpired for me in the front lines. Um, you know, that's inspiring. I mean, because what that says is, Carmen, you know, if I can be this guy who's out there in the field, this is what I do for a living. Yes, I'm impassioned. Yes, it's what I've signed up for. But, you know, we all know split second, your life can change in a heartbeat. But not only did you get back on the horse, not only and we'll talk about how you're, you know, come full circle on the Afghanistan, Afghanistan level here in your journey um, and motorcycles and all, but... You know, you, you wrote a book about it, too. Like, you bared your soul and you put yourself out there. You know, I love the abdominal spirit. I love people who just are so fiercely committed to, no, there's a reason why this happened. There's a reason why this happened. And rather than focusing on the glum and focusing on the negativity and the pessimism and all the things that could, you know, have totally thrown you under the bus, no, you rose in the ranks and you made something of your life and you made something of that experience and you made all the healing and all the issues you had with relationships going awry because of, you know, how you were dealing and coping at the time. You've made this work for yourself beautifully. And so this is the message that I want to impart to the listening audience. You know, for people who are listening to Carmen, whether you can relate to his vocation, whether you can relate to that uh, unique incident of violence, you know, it doesn't matter. It's a metaphor for everything in life. We're all going to be hit with trials and tribulations. There's always going to be something that knocks us off our feet. You know, call it weaponry, call it circumstances, call it death, call it disappointment, failure, whatever. Um, you know, but it's what you do with it. And so for what you've manifested in your life, for how you've made this work for yourself in a positive forward facing direction, I say good on you, Carmen. Appreciate that. Thanks, Lisa. <sighs> Has okay, it been so easy? <laughs> well, no. And you know what? It never is. And that's why a lot of people succumb to, you know, the false beliefs and the concepts. You know, it's too hard. You know, it should have happened faster. You know, people get caught up in this instant, instantaneous, it's got to be a bullseye. It's got to happen overnight. You know, people will tell you, even if they're just talking about success stories, never mind surviving something and then becoming a, you know, a thriver. I say sir, thriver. I don't like the word survivor. Um, but, you know, it, it's just this fierce discipline, this inner mindset. Like, I am not giving up. I'm not going to let anybody dictate the terms of what I do going forward for the rest of my life. Yeah, I got taken out for a little while. Yeah, I was, you know, bedridden for a bit. Yeah, I've got impaired vision. Yeah, I had to wear a patch and, you know, it sucks. But you know what? This, it doesn't stop here. There's more to the story and I have to be the one to tell it. And you told it as it all unleashed for you, as it unearthed for you. You like, you rebirth, man. You had a rebirth. That's true. Um, I just, uh, September, uh, 9th was my eighth anniversary of, of getting shot in the face. And I call that my second birthday because, uh, yeah, these right. last eight years have all been stolen moments. These are, this is bonus time. I, the, I survived a trillion to one shot. I, they should have sent me home in a, in a tin cup. Um, there should have been nothing left of me. And, uh, for whatever reason, I, I managed to make it out. And uh, I've tried to make the most of, of what I've had since then. Well, you certainly have. You have accomplished in that. So you should take great pride in that. Victory. Well done. Um, now, do you have a good pirate impersonation? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? My uh, my daughter has one of her favorite um, children's books. is a book about a, a gang of pirate children. 
that uh, has these illustrations with little kids wearing eye patches, and, and every one of them is me. That's that's you know that's you that's you that's you yeah so right. She, <laughs> she always and she likes to. I have a couple different patches. She likes to try one on, and, and because she looks a lot like me, um, you know, I, I have pictures of her wearing her an eye patch as well. Well, it's also sexy, let me tell you. So you got to keep things working in your favor there. Um, so being cognizant of time, Carmen, I mean, these interviews always go far too quickly for my liking. Not to say that you don't have an open standing invitation. You're welcome to come back anytime. Uh, what are you very quickly currently working on right now? Where can people find you? Well, I am uh, currently I, uh, working on a series now with a, a colleague of mine who also – uh, covers conflict and uh, surprise, surprise. There's a number of us who who do these types of stories who also ride motorcycles. Um, so he and I are working on a story about uh, well, we had done some work previously about uh, motorcycling in Iraq, and now uh, we are working to turn that story that we uh, produced in in print and photo into a series, either for television or a streaming service about combining good storytelling from the places where we've reported previously and motorcycling. So we're going to try to do a, a series uh, where we're riding in places like Afghanistan, riding in places like Haiti, where I've done a lot of reporting, whether it be on the on violence or natural disasters there from places like Mexico, Colombia. Here, uh, I actually live in, in Croatia now, so in uh, the Balkans. Um, mm-hmm and then go back to Iraq. And uh, we're working with a production team to turn it into a series. We'll see how it goes. Fantastic. Well, you know, only up and up for you, my friend. And I just want to say kudos. You know, I completely commend you on what you've done and what you've manifested for yourself. I mean, you are a walking, talking example of how to do it and how to do it beautifully. So congratulations to you, Carmen. I want to thank you for the gift of your time. And I want to thank the listening audience once again for taking time out of your hectic schedule to join us here on Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald. Again, I'd like to thank my corporate sponsors, which is inclusive of Halton Honda, AHA That, and Forever. I also want to remind you that following the live show, you will eventually find the podcast link also uploaded to my host page living fearlessly with lisa mcdonald on the c-suite radio network i want to i'm here i'm very clear on what my purpose and my passion is i'm here to uplift you to fear less and to live more so i want to say have a fantastic safe weekend love and gratitude to you all take care and all my best carmen we'll talk soon bye-bye You've been listening to Living Fearlessly with your host, Lisa McDonald. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>